short warning before we start. This episode contains some scary and possibly disturbing content. I have tried to keep the details vague and mild in case it is played in the vicinity of small children, but as it is spooky season, some of the episodes from now until Christmas may feature some darker themes. Concerned parents should listen to the episodes before sharing them with their children. You have been warned. True, nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous. I had been and am, but why will you say that I am mad? The disease has sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily, how calmly I tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object, there was none. Passion, there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, this was it. One of his eyes resembled that of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold, and so, by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now, this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded, with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a lantern, all closed, closed, so that no light shone out, and then, I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could be seen by him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well into the room, I undid the lantern cautiously, oh, so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye, and this I did for seven long nights, every night just at midnight, but I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible for me to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. 
a watch's minute hand moves more quickly than mine did. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph, to think that there I was, opening the door, little by little, and he did not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now, you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was black as pitch with the thickness of darkness, for the shutters were close-fastened through fear of robbers. And though I knew he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it steadily, steadily. I had my head in and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped on the tin fastening and the old man sprang up in bed crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in bed, listening, just as I have done, night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently, I had heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief. Oh, no. It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when it overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt, and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney, it is only a mouse crossing the floor, or it is merely a cricket which has made one single chirp. Yes. He has been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he found it all in vain, all in vain, because death in approaching him had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. It was more, it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he never saw or heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at a length a single dim ray, like the thread of a spider, shot from the crevice and fell upon the vulture eye. It was open wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my own bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely on the spot. And now, have I not told you what my what you mistake for madness is but an over-acuteness of the senses? Now, I say there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. 
It increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier to charge, but even yet I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could to maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous, so I am. And now, at the dead hour of night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet, for some minutes longer, I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst, and now a new anxiety seized me. The sound could be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him, then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length, it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If still you think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the precise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. Then I took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and disposed all within the scantlings. I then replaced the boards so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot, whatever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught it all. When I had made an end to these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight, as the bell sounded the hour, and there came a knocking at the street door. I went out to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. A suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled. For what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man mentioned, or the old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from all their fatigues, while I, myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. 
My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears, but still they sat and chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and, and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definitiveness until, at length, I found the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice, yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much as the sound a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced to the floor to and fro with heavy strides as if excited to a fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards, but the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no. They heard, they suspected, they knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear these hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now, again, hark, louder, louder, louder. Villains, I shrieked, dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here, it is the beating of his hideous heart. Boy, there is just nothing more encouraging than when somebody feels the need to tell you over and over that they are definitely not crazy. I feel better, don't you? <laughs> oh boy. It is notable that the unnamed, let's say, narrator rather than protagonist, says that he has a morbid over-acuteness of the senses. And if you've read The Fall of the House of Usher last week, Poe seems like to like this particular affliction. It kind of reminds me of misophonia, but with all of your senses rather than just hearing. In The Fall of the House of Usher, Roderick even says that it's hard to find clothes that he can bear to wear because of the feeling of the texture on his skin. Unlike Roderick, who admits that he feels unwell, mentally and physically, this narrator claims very insistently that everything's fine. He's, he's totally saying it's, it's all okay. So he's a little less self-aware than Roderick, who, while he was becoming unhinged, he was definitely aware of that change. This guy is pretty sure that everybody else is the problem, adding a new little splash of paranoia to a very familiar kind of illness that Poe likes to use. Now, this is one of Poe's shortest stories, and scholars believe that Poe stripped it of all excess detail to kind of steamroll the narrator's obsession and madness. We watch it, I guess snowball is a better way to describe the effect rather than steamrolling. He doesn't see the irony that while he cannot understand why anyone would think he is mad, his whole rant is a spiral of psychosis. Nor does he think it's crazy that he has emotionally separated killing the old man who he claims to love to the act of quote-unquote killing the old man's eye. I'm no expert on how to human, but to disassociate your victim from his own eyeball is not a normal way to think. 
The relationship between the killer and the victim is unclear, just as the killer is never given a real name. Poe liked to leave a lot of his main characters nameless, which is kind of kind of weird. And uh, I do find it weird, too, that the relationship between these two is never clarified. There's a lot of people that think that it's kind of a master-servant relationship, that maybe it was the person's valet, since it does seem to be a person of some opulence. But um, there are others who suggest that it's a father-son relationship. Either way, it's clear that these two have known each other for years, and the younger man, I assume it's a younger man since he calls the guy the old man, um, has obviously been in a caretaking position of this person for quite some time. So um, it's kind of weird that it all just boils over right here. I guess it does kind of raise your awareness that you can never be, oh, you know, totally sure what's happening in the mind of the people around you. You don't know, you know, despite how friendly or caring they may seem on the outside, you don't ever really know what they're thinking. And this kind of plays into that kind of fear where somebody very close to you, somebody who you depend on, who has known you for years, may just be, um, let's just say plotting events that are not in your best interest, I guess, you know. Now, I don't know if anyone else likes to view this story from the perspective of the policeman rather than that of the madman, but it makes the story completely hilarious. Just if you ever go through and reread it, but think about it from the from the scene where the policemen enter the home, picture the entire story from their perspective. I don't know, I heard somebody read the story out loud a few years ago, and ever since then I can't get the policeman's perspective out of my head, because the narrator is insisting, I'm not crazy, I'm not crazy, I don't know why you guys would think I was crazy, I just wanted to kill this man's eyeball, and if it happened to involve killing him, that's fine, I just, I wanted to kill the eye guys, and he describes, you know, sitting in this room with the policeman, and he's getting louder and louder, and shouting, and swinging his chair, and swearing out of nowhere, and just, you know, acting crazy, and I'm going, you know, from the policeman, Everything was pretty normal up until this point from their perspective. And yeah, I mean, just the irony that he doesn't see any of these actions as being, you know, mentally unwell shows just how far gone he is because he cannot conceive of why on earth anybody would think he was crazy. So, I don't know, just to me, I always kind of chuckle about the story when I picture it from the policeman's perspective where they've just had kind of a... a normal kind of domestic disturbance sound you know loud noise call they go to investigate a loud sound and i don't know i just feel like this would leave an interesting how was work dear discussion with their wives at the end of the night well yeah well you know it's pretty normal i went in and talked to this guy he shouted and it turns out he he says he was just having a nightmare and then he just starts going crazy and swinging furniture around and shouting and stuff i don't know it had to have been a funny story for these three policemen. Thank goodness they didn't go into the home alone, as you sometimes see in these kind of stories, right? But I don't know. It's just, it's a different perspective to look at the story from, and I just can't get it out of my head how weird and surreal it would be to go into this man's house as one of the police officers. And the irony that this person is absolutely 100% sure that they are sane and they're clearly not. I wrote an essay in high school, um, creative writing class, about 
um, how crazy people don't know they're crazy. And so theoretically, we could all be crazy and simply not know it. And then the fact that I don't think I'm crazy could be proof that maybe I am. And this short story has always given me kind of serious vibes to that effect, where this narrator is so certain of his own sanity, which clearly we as the readers, just from his monologue alone, know to be uh, pretty shaky grounds for his argument. Anyway, thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed our Halloween season specials as much as I have. It's Halloween and Christmas are my favorite times of the year to make this podcast, so I, I really hope you've loved Spooky Season as we get into Christmas time and more festive stories. I'm, I'm super, super excited about it, and uh, thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Please like, subscribe, and share this with anybody you think would be interested in some spooky stories for Halloween. And, uh, you know, be safe trick-or-treating this weekend, guys. Bye. Hey, guys. It is still spooky season, so for Halloween today, I've decided to cover The Fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe. I may have participated in a tragedy, but I'm not a figure of it. As always, when it came to the Usher family, I was on the outside watching the tragic events unfold. My childhood was actually very idyllic. We lived near the Usher house, and the young Roderick Usher had always been my dearest friend in my boyhood. We would play around the grounds of his family's sprawling mansion, climbing trees and swimming and roughhousing, ending our days filthy, flushed, and exhausted, as boys do. Roderick's sister, Madeline, preferred more indoor pursuits that suited her introverted nature, but still my memories of that place are all happy ones. Life had gently pulled us apart, as it does, and it had been many years since I had seen my dearest friend. I was very surprised to suddenly receive his letter, surprised and distressed. His letter said that he was very, very sick and needed me to be there with him to lighten his struggle. Without hesitation, I packed my things, put on my coat, and left to walk the paths of my childhood and return to the House of Usher. The House of Usher referred to the ancient lineage of the family, sorry, of the ancient prestigious family that occupied the mansion of the Usher family which people referred to as though the house and the family were one and the same. I rode my horse past town through the once cheerful flower-lined road which turned dark and gloomy. It was a jarring shift from my childhood memories as I came upon the grounds I was struck in the face by the color gray. Despite the beautiful, fiery fall foliage, In the surrounding forest, the once elegantly manicured grounds were gray. On the manor, gray-green moss climbed the crumbling gray stone up to the gray sky. It was a small, permanent winter surrounded by blazing fall. No deep red maple leaves, no jolly orange pumpkins, just cold, stretching, aching gray. It filled me with sadness and dread to know that the Usher family recently left the grounds 
or sorry, rarely left the grounds, and where were self-imprisoned in this melancholy tomb. While the home still seemed as magnificent as it was gloomy, if you looked closely enough, you could see a long, zigzagging crack that crept from the very top of the mansion, down, down, down to the gray lake over which the house of Usher was precariously perched on a gray rock. When I entered the house that was once a home, a servant led me through the mournful gray halls to find Roderick himself, but I could barely believe that this man was once the boy I had known. The general color and structure seemed correct, yet there was a pale, sunken frailty that made him nearly unrecognizable. Still, he greeted me with a cheerfulness that seemed like it must be an act except for the sincerity in his eyes. After some mandatory small talk, Roderick told me of the troubles he had summoned me for. He had developed a morbid sensitivity of the senses. The scent of flowers assaulted him, music caused him pain, and even the blandest of foods was unbearably overpowering. My friend was sure that this condition would kill him, though I personally thought that the hypochondria could do with some sleep, food, and a vacation to see more cheerful sights. Halfway through the conversation, the equally thin but lovely lady of the house, Madeline Usher, wandered through the room without a word or even a glance in my direction. She swooshed in one door and out the other, silent as a ghost. When I sent a questioning gaze to Roderick, to my shock, I found him covering his face and sobbing. According to him, she was also terribly ill. Madeline was cataleptic and would go into catatonic death-like trances. She also was not long for this world. Poor Roderick. He truly believed that he was facing the complete end of his family line and the death of his only living family member. I spent the next several days trying to cheer my morose friend. It was quite a task since Roderick seemed to be overwhelmed by nearly any stimulus. Sometimes he would just seem to come out of his gloomy fog only to suddenly be snapped back into it. We read together and pursued quiet means of soothing his, him as the doctors wove in and out of his sister's room, each with worse news than their predecessor. I was not surprised one night when Roderick told me that Madeline had passed away, though I was surprised by his solution. Catalepsy was quite rare, and Roderick didn't want any of the fascinated chain of doctors to desecrate his sister's grave in order to study her. As such, he resolved to keep her mortal husk in his family dungeon for a few weeks rather than the family plot, so that when she reached her final destination, she would be too far gone to disturb. Thinking back on the barely contained interest of the doctors, I agreed to help him. That very night, we carefully hauled Madeline down into the only part of the house that I had never dared visit as a boy, the dungeons. When we at last reached the vault that would be her temporary grave and made to nail shut the lid, I was struck by a revelation. It was natural for siblings to resemble each other, but Roderick and Madeline were shockingly similar. Catching my glance, Roderick muttered something about the two of them being twins. It seemed strange to me that this was a new fact, despite having known both of them for most of my life. Considering their uniquely close bond, I suppose I should have assumed if not known this fact about my friend and his sole companion for many years. 
We nailed her coffin shut, then closed it behind the cold iron doors of the vault and went back to bed. Madeline's death triggered a change in my already gloomy friend. None of our previous pursuits gave him happiness or even peace any longer. He painted dark, chilling, abstract paintings that made me shudder with their intensity. He never spoke his sister's name. It seemed that his grief had consumed what little was left of him. All the while, the growing storm grew closer. It finally hit at night, thundering and rattling the windows, waking me from my deep sleep. As I slowly left the room, trying not to awaken my host or their staff, I was caught up by Roderick, who was energized and agitated. Have you seen it? He asked, and before I could ask what he was talking about, he flung the windows open and shouted, You will! Outside, the manor was surrounded by cloud upon cloud of glowing gas that he was sure was of some ghostly origin. I tried to calm Roderick and reassure him that it was simply an electrical phenomenon caused by the storm. Let me read to you, I suggested, and help you find peace. I chose a fairy tale and jokingly called it an old favorite, as Roderick tended to perform more instructive or philosophical works. I was surprised, as I read, that the events in the book seemed to be manifesting in the real world, as the knight in the story cracked through the wooden gate barring his way to the princess. From somewhere in the house I could hear the splitting of dry, ancient wood. When the hero smashed the dragon's metal-plated head with his spiked lance, I could hear the screeching of metal on metal and the scream of the dragon's agony. I shook my head, trying to clear it. Was I going mad, too? Was this place slowly unraveling me, too? I met Roderick's gaze. You heard it, too, didn't you? He asked. It's her. We have buried her still alive, and she rises. I was about to tell him that that was absurd, when over the din of the roaring storm, I, heard, I too heard the approaching steps on the landing. She comes, Roderick cried, trembling and shuddering. I flung open the door to the hall to prove to both of us that there was nothing there, only to open it and find Madeline. Her white funeral shroud was stained with filth and her own blood. She, her emaciated body was injured and broken from her struggle to escape her casket and her iron vault. The sounds I heard during the story suddenly made a lot more sense. I just had time to register this when Madeline went from slowly reeling on the spot to screaming like a banshee and flinging her body at her brother who was still trembling with fear. The twins slammed together and reeled on the spot then crashed to the floor, both dead. I don't know what came over me. My mind blurred away as raw horror tore through my limbs, which seemed to launch me through the corridors and out of the house. My eyes felt like they were frozen open. My heart hammered. I gasped and gasped, but never seemed to catch my breath. My ears felt as though they were stuffed with cotton, and I heard nothing but my own heartbeat until I flung myself out into the storm and the cool rain hit my overheated face. Slowly, as my pulse calmed and my vision untunneled, the sounds of the outside world were able to creep back into my brain. Among the chaos of the storm, a mighty crack shot through the air, jolting me to my bones. The mansion split along its dreadful crack, and the broken pieces collapsed with a groan into the black lake below, which swallowed every fragment, fragment eagerly. 
like all Edgar Allan Poe stories, you can find this one on YouTube, read by Christopher Lee, whose voice is much more, you know, resonant and effective than my kind of nasal Midwestern voice. He, you know, you can't outvoice that guy. I don't know. Maybe James Earl Jones would give him a run for his money, but he has a beautiful voice or had, sorry, had a beautiful voice. And his reading of these different Edgar Allan Poe stories is truly magnificent. I definitely recommend you play it in the dark on Halloween night for full effect. It's absolutely beautiful. But if you're looking for something a little more lighthearted and you don't mind a little salty language, there is a YouTuber that does um, something he calls Thug Notes versions of classic literature, and that is absolutely hilarious, not only because of his using gangster speak translation for these classic literature tales, but also because of his kind of gleeful delivery of such creepy, dark content. It's absolutely hilarious because he's just smiling and giggling away as he talks about these twins just destroying each other. It, I don't know. It's it's really funny. It made me giggle. The guy just, he seems like a really funny guy. But of course, for the best version of the story, read the original by Edgar Allan Poe. Please like, subscribe, and share this show with the story lover in your life. And I can't wait to see you for more of Spooky Season here on Southern Pride Storytime. Thanks again for tuning in. Dirk frowned across the bar at his younger brother, Evan. He was still prattling on and on about this morning. They had been out hunting when he found the body of a young boy in the woods. By they were hunting, that he meant Dirk. Evan had tagged along to stay out of their mother's way. He was a terrible hunter and too clumsy to be trusted in the woods alone. The boy had been mauled by a gi the giant boar that had been rampaging across the whole kingdom. Evan had been tromping through the brush, scaring all the game away from Dirk when he tripped on a root and belly flopped onto the ground and came face to face with the boy's remains. Now he was in the tavern, basking in all the attention the same way he had been when they had accidentally come across the Princess Lily in the same woods. She had been chatting with Evan the whole hour when Dirk found them, and the whole village had been excited to hear about the legendary beauty. Just then... Aiden, the merchant's boy, came peeling into the tavern. His face was flushed and sweaty, and he gasped to catch his breath. As soon as he had, he told them all the big news. The king had had enough of this boar terrorizing his people. He hadn't wanted to do it, but he finally put out the order. The demon of the woods must die. Whoever does the deed would get to marry the king's youngest daughter, Princess Lily. With that, Evan leaped to his feet. I'll do it. I'll get the monster and win my lady love. And with that, Evan was out the door. The tavern exploded in a cacophony of laughter. Everyone knew that Evan was the worst hunter in town. A few of the older patrons cuffed Dirk on the shoulder, laughing and shaking their heads. They knew Evan would never succeed without his brother's superior skills. After a few more rounds, the men were sloshing their drinks and chuckling about how Evan wouldn't find the boar. Even if he did, he would never survive the encounter. Dirk laughed and told them not to get his hopes up. The drunken fools laughed at his joke. They thought he was joking. Eventually, he had had enough to drink, blinked hard a few times, and rose unsteadily from his chair. It was time to go home. 
Evan tripped and shuffled his way, his gangly limbs through the woods. He hummed and bounced between the trees, overjoyed. He was so happy that he was going to see the Princess Lily again. She had been so kind when they had met in the woods. He had gotten caught in one of his brother's fox traps. She hadn't laughed or mocked him. She had just smiled and dismounted her horse to set him free. Soon they were talking and carrying on like old friends. It was as if they had spent decades together. Lily's green eyes had sparkled behind her dark auburn curls. He was shaken from his blissful daydream when a tiny man hopped into his path. He told Evan that he had seen that he was good and pure of heart, and as such, he would help him. He presented Evan with a small black spear that was the proper size for the dwarf, but a bit small for Evan. It was smooth and bejeweled around the tip, and the dwarf said that he was sure that it would do the trick. He had hardly taken the little spear in hand when he heard the stomping and huffing of the beast behind him. Dirk crossed the little wooden bridge on the way home. Even now, he was not quite drunk enough to ignore the gasping and grunting of someone coming up behind him. He turned and blinked his watery eyes. Evan was pushing a wheelbarrow over the little wooden bridge. It was overflowing with the remains of a massive boar. When he saw Dirk, Evan almost hopped up and down with excitement. He babbled on and on, and it all sounded blurry and mumbly to him. He wasn't sure exactly what Evan was saying, but it was clear that, yet again, he had gotten everything he wanted. A life of luxury and riches and a beautiful wife to spend it with. Best of all, now he could rub it in Dirk's face. He went on and on about his dreams and how magnificent his life would be while Dirk pictured his whole life toiling away in the hot sun. He wasn't really sure how it had happened. With how much he had had to drink, he could never remember clearly, but at some point he had grabbed a huge stone and smashed his brother's skull. He buried him deeply in the creek bed, then pushed the wheelbarrow into town to collect his claim to a better future. Years later, a young shepherd named Pip was looking for a new pasture for his sheep. He crossed over a crumbling old wooden bridge that had begun to decay with age. The old creek beneath the bridge had dried up long ago, and the town had dried up with it. But the rich soil of the former creek bed had the most lovely green grass he had seen all day. He stopped and allowed his sheep to feed. He sat on a somewhat steady bit of the bridge and took out his pipe to play when he saw something small and white gleaming against the dark soil and dense grass. He leaned over to pick it up, and he noticed that it was a small bone, probably the neck bone of a large animal. As he washed it with the water from his canteen, he realized that it was the perfect size and shape to be a mouthpiece for his pipe. Oh, dear shepherd, you are blowing your horn with one of my bones, which might which night and morn lie unburied beneath the wave, where I was thrown in a sandy grave. I killed the wild boar, and my brother slew me, and gained the princess by pretending t'was he. Oh, Oliver growled. He doesn't like that. <laughs> Pip dropped the instrument. A man's voice had rung out from the horn, singing clearly as he played. He shuddered at the tune, the possessed pipe had played. The prince, the husband of the beautiful Princess Lily. Could this be referring to him? Impossible. He would never kill his brother. He had died trying to fight the boar. Still, the whole situation made him uncomfortable, and he thought it would be best to take it to the court and see what was made of it. Princess Lily sat next to her father, and her husband, Dirk, sat on the king's other side. 
It was the first time she had seen him for over a week. He didn't even spare her a glance. They had not gotten along well since the wedding, but the last year had been filled with fighting and screaming. Once the guards had even had to prevent him from striking her. More than once she found herself wishing that his younger brother had won her hand. He was also a commoner, but he had been kind. All she wanted was for the person she married to also be her friend. But heavy is the head that wears the crown. Today was audience day, the day that the common people came before the king with their needs and requests. Personally, she enjoyed getting to know her people better. Dirk, however, would rather spend his time cavorting around town with the local ne'er-do-wells. He would roll his eyes and mock the locals as if he hadn't once been a commoner. Working-class man all himself. All his mockery stopped, however, when a young shepherd named Pipped approached the king, trembling, and quietly told the king that he thought he could report a murder. "'You think?' Dirk asked. If you're wasting our time, you'd better be sure. Why do you think there was a murder, my son? The king asked gently, casting a scolding eye at his son-in-law. Well, my horn says so, the poor timid boy stammered. Out of pity, one of the guards stepped forward. Your highness, the lad played his horn for us before we allowed him to enter. I really do think that if you would allow him to play, perhaps your majesty could better see past a young man's nerves. He placed a large comforting hand on the boy's shoulder. The king looked from the guard to his captain. The captain of the guard was pale and stern, but shook his head. The boy needed to be heard. The boy pressed his lips to the mouthpiece, and what came out next was a tune so mournful that the good princess was moved to tears. The king was also transfixed, but Prince Dirk no longer looked smug. He seemed to be working himself into a silent, simmering rage. This rage only grew as the tune from the pipes shifted to a man's haunting tenor voice. Ah, dear shepherd, you are blowing your horn with one of my bones, which night and morn lie unburied beneath the wave where I was thrown in a sandy grave. I killed the wild boar, and my brother slew me, and gained the princess by pretending t'was he. The room grew silent, and everyone stared at Prince Dirk, whose face had turned from red to white. He stood abruptly and slow-clapped mockingly. Very good, kid. You are a magnificent puppeteer. But I can write a song about wearing live monkeys for shoes. That doesn't make it so. It should be easy enough to confirm, said the king, rising to his feet. Where did you find the bone, lad? The smug smirk slid off Dirk's face as Pip described the place, and the whole party mounted horses and went in search. When they arrived at the creek, they dug into the black soil, and soon enough they found Evan's remains perfectly intact except for the missing neck bone that was in the shepherd's pipe and the hopelessly shattered skull. Dirk had been growing more and more uncomfortable through the whole search and was panting in frustration as the king announced confidently that this was not the work of a boar. He looked at his son-in-law. "'Do you have anything to say about this?' he asked. He was hoping for a denial, for any reason why his own family couldn't be responsible for this tragedy. What he got was, "'My only regret was that I didn't bury him deeper,' he growled. With that, the older brother was hung for murder, the younger brother was given a proper burial, and Pip was allowed to keep the mouthpiece for his horn, but it never sang again. Hey everyone, Lemonade Mermaid here, and this week's story was The Singing Bone. This is a shorter one, but it's pretty interesting to me. I think it really appeals to our 
sense of justice as a society. You know, we see many crimes happen, and probably less since the advent of DNA, but many crimes happen where the proper person is never really brought to justice for it, even if it's like a minor crime, like somebody telling a lie about you. And so stories like this were often told in fairy tale times, and while they're not romantic, they're not, you know, they don't have a, a moral per se, they kind of are made to cater to our desire for justice to be served, for people who have done wrong to be held accountable for that, which doesn't always happen in the real world. And while the fairy tale world is a place of darkness and scary things, your your crimes do have a way of kind of catching up with you in the fairy tale realm. So uh, this story is here to kind of satisfy that sense that the truth always comes out and punishment is always dealt to evildoers when someone does wrong. Stories like this help us feel that in the end everyone gets what they deserve. But since this story obviously didn't turn out too well for Evan, um, I'm going to ask you, think of your own sins, your thoughts, your angriest moments. Think of what you do when no one is looking. Do you really want to get what you deserve? I know I don't. And so in that sense, maybe we should be a little more relieved that we don't live in the fairy tale world. I'm not saying I, I like squished a guy's skull with a rock. I'm just saying none of us are perfect enough to deserve the comforts that the heroes often get in these fairy tales. I did kind of read through today's story a little quickly. It's because while Bailey has gotten over her cold from last week, now Oliver seems to have the exact same cold, so I'm trying to kind of read and finish up before he starts coughing, because it does sound much worse than it is, and I'm since he's got all the same symptoms, I'm guessing it's the same, same cold as his sister, so he'll probably be beyond it in about a week, but it's not the most attractive sound, so I'm <laughs> trying to get this done before you have to hear any of that. And he's taken a nap, so he should be feeling much better later. If you like this podcast and you would like to hear more fairy tales, um, please like and subscribe to help me beat the big tech algorithms. If you really want to help in the most meaningful way, you could partner up with me by um, contributing on my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash southernfried, which has many different tiers. You can join for as little as a dollar, and uh, there are special benefits and special extra content content that you get by joining us at patreon.com and that and it just kind of helps keep this podcast going so I would definitely appreciate any help that you'd be willing to contribute if you can I don't want to you know try and push you beyond your means I know a lot of people aren't able to work right now and so I know that we're all kind of stretched pretty thin these days but uh if you aren't able to contribute financially, again, I'd just be really grateful if you would like and subscribe. It costs you nothing, and it would really, really help me. You can also follow my video segments on Rumble, where they are also under the name Southern Fried Storytime. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Next week, we will continue along our Halloween specials with one of my favorites. We're going to do The Legend of Sleepy Hollow next week, so I expect it to be quite a bit longer, which will kind of make up for these last two weeks that have been a bit on the short side, but I've known all the way through building up to The Legend of Sleepy Hollow that that was going to be a pretty long segment, and I hope you look forward to it as much as I do. Have a great weekend. 
Hey guys, Lemonade Mermaid here. I just wanted to warn you in case the title wasn't a big enough clue, The Flayed Old Woman is a pretty violent, kinda gross story. It is a classic fairy tale from Il Pantamarone by Jean Battista Bastille, so it is kind of a historically important fairy tale because it comes from kind of the origins of fairy tales, but it can get kind of rough sometimes. So if you are listening with your kids or in the car, you may want to pre-listen to this one first and see if they're up for it before you go ahead and listen to it as a group because this one can get a little hard to handle at times. With that said, time for the story. Angelica and Claudia sang cheerfully as they did their chores. It was one of the few joys the sisters had left. Time had ground their smooth joints into rusty hinges. The wiry white hair on their heads had grown so thin that one could easily see their equally white scalp. The hair that belonged up there seemed to be growing everywhere else instead these days. They were wrinkled as dried apples and their teeth departed decades ago. Living in a poverty-stricken neighborhood had left them riddled with flea bites and oozing scabs. When they sang together, they forgot all this. Their voices were as clear and harmonious as they had been in their prime. They smiled at each other as their voices rose like chorus girls through the roof of their little hut. From above the city, high in his castle, the young king heard their voices ringing like wind chimes up to his tower. He sighed rapturously. Such beautiful voices must belong to women of truly radiant beauty. He had to see them. He swept from the window and pulled on his shoes. He whisked down the streets and into the darker, shadier areas of town. It was smelly and unfamiliar, but he couldn't help it. He was drawn by their siren song. He stopped outside a rotting wood door of a rough sandstone hut and knocked hard on the door. The singing stopped abruptly, and soft, dainty footsteps sounded behind the door. Excuse me, I heard the lovely voices flowing richly from this door and could not help but be enchanted. Giggles sounded from the other side of the door. Claudia had peeped through the keyhole and saw that it was the king himself who came to call on them. He thought he was pursuing some blossoming young lady, not two old birds. He begged so pitifully to see at least one of the maidens that even they felt sorry for him. But, as they examined each other, it was clear that there was no part of either of them that wouldn't offend his senses. Angelica sighed and put on her sweetest fake voice and told the king to come back in one week. They would show him one little finger. He agreed and huffed off to the castle to wait impatiently. Claudia was horrified. How could you tell him that? In a week we will be older, not younger. True, but with all of the lovely ladies at court, the king won't spend time dwelling on whether or not he can see one silly old finger. But if he does... Fine, worry if you want, but rest assured, that foolish womanizer has forgotten us already. And worry Claudia did. She chose the littlest finger on her left hand and tried to make it look younger. She coated it with honey and syrup. She sucked it and coated it with beautifying oils and just hoped that Angelica was right. Alas, she was not. One week later, on the hour, the young king was back at the door. Apparently, mother was right. Nothing is more attractive than a little mystery. Claudia put her little finger through the keyhole of the door, and the king kissed it. More intrigued than ever, he began to beg them to come back to his castle and meet with him tonight. Claudia and Angelica declined. However, the king's pleas became demands, and his demands became orders under threat. 
Claudia shot a panicked look at Angelica, who kept her cool. Oh, my king, I would be far too embarrassed to see in, to be seen in your great palace, but since you leave me no choice, I will come. However, you must keep all the lights off, not one candle, because I'm so terribly shy and unworthy. The king agreed and rushed home to prepare his staff for the strange meeting and make himself presentable. Once he was out of earshot, the sisters got to work. Claudia helped Angelica pull all of her extra skin back, back, behind her back. Then she used twine to tie it behind her. This pulled her wrinkles smooth. After this, Angelica grabbed a hairbrush and Claudia grabbed some tweezers, and they fixed the sparse hairs on the woman's head while removing the others that had settled elsewhere. While plucking the wiry white hairs from Angelica's knuckles, Claudia noticed that her sister's fingernails were long and jagged with a thick, smelly layer of black filth under each nail. She sighed and wished they had more time. Angelica quietly entered the pitch-black ballroom in the high tower of the castle. Still, the sound of her shoes against the floor seemed to echo with startling volume. She heard the king's equally loud approach as he ran his fingers over her face and kissed her. They ate dinner in complete darkness and tried to ignore the sounds of the servants tripping over the rug. After dinner, he gathered her into his arms, and she thanked every star she knew that his cologne was stronger than her body odor or rancid breath. But when the king's hands met behind her back, he found an unpleasant surprise. His hands did on the knot of ancient flesh tied behind her back. Naturally concerned, the king lit a candle and discovered the deception. He tried not to retch when he saw her diseased, flea-bitten flesh gathered into a withered bundle at her back. The guards gathered the shrieking hag up and gagged as they tossed her out the tower window. After all, they weren't wearing the king's strong cologne. She would have fallen to her death. Indeed, she wished that she had. But instead, the bundle of skin on her back had come loose, and Angelica was painfully caught in the claws of a nearby tree. There she hung, clothes torn to ribbons, hanging from her own loose, bloody flesh from a tree, when a group of fairies who lived in the woods happened by. Their laughter at her expense tinkled through the air like little bells. As pleasant as the sound was, Angelica couldn't help but cry harder. Finally, out of pity... And as a reward for giving them the best laugh they had ever had, they returned her to her young, beautiful self with a wave of their hands. Her hair was long and thick and glossy. Her skin shone like fresh, creamy caramel. Her green eyes were no longer crusty, and the eyelashes had grown back. The king had noticed the beautiful mystery maiden outside of his window in the morning, and after his disappointing evening, he needed something to cheer him up, so he ran to meet her. He immediately proposed, and she accepted under the condition that she was permitted to invite Claudia to the wedding, which was to take place that very afternoon. Claudia was shocked when she saw Angelica. As she sat next to her, her sister during the reception, she whispered in her ear, begging her to tell her how she'd done it. Angelica told Claudia that she would tell her later and lifted her glass daintily for a toast. Claudia raised her voice. All of our years together and you won't tell me? How could you do this to me? How could you keep me from this chance? She was tearing up in anger and frustration. Shh, I had my old skin removed to reveal the beautiful skin underneath. We'll talk more about it later. 
But as she turned her head to look at her groom, Claudia slipped out the door. Her skin folds sweated as she walked through the hot afternoon sun. She walked quickly around corners as people ducked out of her way, her determination giving her tunnel vision. Finally, she saw it, the barber shop. She stepped in and demanded that the barber remove her skin. He refused outright. She offered him all the money she had, but he still declined, reminding her as nicely as he could that she would die. She shrieked and begged and complained until all of his customers left, and finally he agreed, if for no other reason than to get the noise and the smell out of his shop. He strapped the woman into his chair and lifted his razor and made the first cut. He sliced and tore away her tissue, thin flesh, while she repeated, You must suffer for beauty. You must suffer for beauty. You must suffer for beauty. Until she died. Angelica waited and waited for Claudia to come talk to her that night, but she never arrived. She found later about how her sister's terrible demise, as she grew older again and the king grew tired of her. This time she had to reach her elderly years alone, waiting to see her sister again. The purpose of this story was to warn people both about vanity and envy. I first encountered it in the movie Tale of Tales, which is another name for El Pantamarone, and uh, the story kind of disturbed me. It's funny because the actual written story of the Pantamarone has several, several stories in it, and they only chose like four or five for the movie, and I don't know why they chose this one in particular, but to me, just the idea of having your, your skin kind of peeled off from you is terrifying and atrocious. So, you know, to me... It's, that's pretty disturbing, but, um, but they went ahead and put it in the movie, and I don't know, I guess it's just to me, because there are so many nerve endings in the skin, the idea of this happening is, I don't know, it just truly freaks me out, guys. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh, it's just, it's just terrible. Um, the process of flaying was used as a medieval form of torture, but it was, uh, incredibly rare for them to do it because it was kind of a, kind of a extreme, long-term, terrible thing to do. It just, it took so long to do it. It wasn't, it wasn't like pulling out somebody's fingernails that you could accomplish in a few minutes to a few hours. This took days. Uh, the victim would first be soaked in hot water to loosen the skin from the muscles. Then large cuts would be made in the victim's body so that then large sheets of flesh could be torn off the body of the victim. This would be more meticulous and it just, it takes a lot of time. And so, you know, obviously it's incredibly painful. So it's usually kind of a last resort as far as choosing torture methods. Last parts of you to be peeled would be the Places like your face and hands, places with lots of little bitty corners and stuff to work around. And uh, so they required a little more care, but also those places tend to be the places with the most nerve endings. So this would be where it would also hurt the most. This makes this one of the most, if not the very most, painful way to die. So, yeah.
It's pretty awful. Um, if you're wondering why she went to the barber to do this, um, some of you who are more familiar with kind of America's Wild West history will be familiar with the concept that the barber also kind of performed minor surgery back in the day. So if you needed a bullet removed and a haircut and a shave, you went to your barber. He could handle the whole job. And so while it seems weird to modern audiences that she went to the barber to have him, you know, skin her alive, first of all, consider... It's weird that she went to anybody to have herself skinned alive. So, secondly, for the barber, minor surgery was just another day. I mean, I guess he's, he's got the razors there, so why not? Now, the funny thing about flaying is you can actually survive the actual flaying process. If you survive the blood loss and the shock of having your skin removed from your body, you have to remember, if you've watched my YouTube channel, your skin is the largest organ in your immune system. So as soon as it's gone, hypothermia and infection almost always follow. So it may take several days to die, but truly no one can survive without their skin. Death is the inevitable end result. It just uh, doesn't happen as soon as you probably hope it would in that situation. So um, this comes from the Pentamarone, as I mentioned, by John Battista Basile, also known as Tale of Tales. It is framed as a series of stories within another story. So think kind of your Arabian Nights slash Thousand and One Nights, how um, it's the story of Scheherazade, and inside that story she tells all of the Arabian Nights tales. This is very similar. It has to do with a princess who's had her throne stolen by a servant. That servant then demands that people tell her stories or else she will kill her unborn child who is the heir of the king at this point. So, of course, everybody wants this heir to survive, so they begin telling her stories. And this is what comprises the Pentamarone, which is one of the oldest collections of fairy tales we've ever had. It has beloved kind of uh, stories that we all know, like Cinderella, Rapunzel, and Puss in Boots. And then there's this one. It's weird, it's creepy, it's painful to listen to, and so it's perfect for starting out October. Interestingly, I have uh, read several versions of the Pentamarone, and um, this tends to be one of the tales that doesn't always make the cut. It's in some versions of it, and some translations of it, and not in others, so I'm not sure if, if it's kind of like they did like the Grimm's, where they just kind of you know edit out some of the yuckier bits here and there and that happened to be this whole story or if you know just children's collections don't want to include this one which to me is totally understandable the story emphasizes many many times how disgusting and ancient these old women are and it also is pretty graphic about the flaying process and the old lady's skin bundle gathered behind her back and just, I mean, it, it's, it's a rough story. And, uh, I actually kind of toned down a couple parts of it. There is a lot of kind of adult relations and implications surrounding the King. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just not cool. So I, I figured there's really no, no point to that. So I edited that out for today because some versions have the adult relations in it. Some versions don't. So I figure, why put that in if we don't need it for this particular story? As you may have guessed from my choosing this particular 
uncomfortable tale that this October I am having a frightful fairy tale fest and what I'm going to do is pick out some fairy tales, fables, um, local legends, stuff like that that are just a little on the creepier side than what I would normally like to do which is saying something because a lot of these older stories are kind of creepy or gross and I'm going to take those and make those the highlight for the entire month of October. I've already picked out a bunch of spooky stories that I'd like to share with you and I'm really excited about it. I hope that you enjoy it if you like creepier stories. The Flayed Old Woman isn't creepy in so much that there's like a haunting or a ghost or anything like that. It's just creepy to me just because the idea of having all the skin removed from your body. I mean you could never touch anything again. I mean it, the amount of nerve endings. Like I, I, I'm kind of a wimp when it comes to like a blister or a burn so I can't imagine all of my skin removed and my nerves exposed but um, they say that since most of the nerves are in the skin itself once it's been removed the process actually isn't all that painful anymore I don't believe that I think that's a big fat lie right to my face I think that that would be one of the most painful things on planet earth so if you want to hear more creepy things spooky things or just kind of uncomfortable things keep listening for october for our spooky story fest i am super excited about it because this is one of my favorite times of year and then i don't know i'm thinking about maybe around christmas doing something similar with more christmas themed stories which will be fun because historically christmas stories were actually ghost stories too prior to charles dickens's the night before christmas which or sorry the Christmas Carol, Night Before Christmas was a poem. Totally different thing. I'm getting excited here talking about spooky stuff. Um, prior to A Christmas Carol, Christmas was not a widely celebrated holiday. Uh, often people worked through it, which is kind of the moral of A Christmas Carol is, is Dickens's commentary on um, people's irreverence for the holiday itself, which I'll get into if I decide to do that story for Christmas. But prior to that, um, Christmas was just kind of a, a holiday where you, it was still a working holiday like we have today. So you'd, you know, celebrate in some small way with like a special dinner and maybe some ghost stories around the fire at night, but that was about it. And so Dickens was, you know, very, very Christian man and he wanted to bring back some reverence for this holiday. And so that's why they call him the man who saved Christmas. And so that would be an interesting story to leap into for Christmas season, but um, yeah, so if those end up kind of having a spookier note too, just like my Halloween stories, I'm not deviating from the Christmas plan. It was actually that way for hundreds of years. So hopefully you'll enjoy my theme, sticking with kind of spookier theme for October and, you know, possibly December now. We'll see. Um, if you want to continue to listen, my episodes are for free every Friday on your favorite podcast platform. If you want more stories from me, photos, and blog posts, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash southernfried. There I have a short story that I write every um, Wednesday. I do videos on Rumble every Monday. I have pictures from my travels and a blog post every Thursday. So I love sharing that with you. It's a ton of fun. Please, please subscribe. It really does help me um, kind of keep the podcast going. And uh, if you can't join me on Patreon, if that's not within your budget, I know a lot of people are unemployed right now because of COVID. So if you're unable to contribute financially, just like, subscribe, share this podcast with as many people as you can. This makes me come up faster in those Google searches and that way um, 
you know, more people will get to hear the story and get to hear the real stories of our fairy tales that have kind of been glossed over and, you know, had glitter thrown at them and made them all pretty. And when you do that, you lose the lesson, which today was about how horrifying vanity can be. Oh, dear. Yeah, that was a rough one. So uh, thank you for tuning in. Brace yourself for the rest of October because I'm going to be picking some of the spookiest ones I can find, and I look forward to sharing them with you. Have a wonderful weekend. Ghosts are bad, but the one that's cursed is the headless horseman. He's the worst. (laughs) Okay, so I'm no Bing Crosby, but I dare you. Watch Disney's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. That song is stuck in my head for hours, possibly days, afterwards. And so, I don't know, I hope the same is true of you, but I am kind of a nerd, so it may just be me. And without further ado, we're going to start today's story, episode 11 of the Southern Fried Storytime podcast, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. My name is Katrina, and I live in a tiny town in Sleepy Hollow, the small valley near Terrytown, New York. You'd love it here. It's truly a magical place, where here we are privy to various goblins, ghouls, and witches, star showers, and celestial events. The gentle, rolling green hills shelter little farms nestled in little corners, and the largest of these farms belongs to my father, Baltus Van Tassel. Let me tell you, my courtship would have been complicated enough if my father's wealth were the only factor, but on top of that, there was a new man in town about the same time. He was the new school teacher. He was young and incredibly thin, with a long nose and gangly limbs. Normally, a scarecrow like that wouldn't stand a chance with the richest girl in town, but if you've ever lived in a small town, you know that a new face has a certain appeal. He brought news from the big cities and up and down the East Coast, and it was flattering to receive attention from an educated, well-read man. My other, most ardent suitor, tended to ignore me if there was any sort of fun diversion to distract him. Brom Van Brunt was a man who was still very much a boy back then. He assumed that because he was the most handsome and promising man in town, that I was a sure thing as his wife. He thought he didn't even need to try. So, when the schoolmaster asked if I wanted to start taking singing lessons, I thought it might be a good time to light a fire under him. Ichabod Crane, our new teacher, was almost charming in his funny, awkward way. He flattered and talked enthusiastically on old ghost stories, a popular topic in this area. He talked about his life as a teacher, moving from the home of one family to another. He would help with the chores and on the local farms. He spoke of the children in his class and how sometimes he had to rebuke a better-behaved kid for misdeed, but it was usually the more stubborn, bullheaded troublemakers that ended up getting the bulk of his punishment. He liked kids and helping to care for them, but he especially liked when their mothers were good cooks. He loved good food and he loved lots of it, he said, eyeing my father's pantries and fields. Subtle. Brom was finally paying attention to what he could lose. He tried to prank and humiliate the teacher at every turn. He trained a local dog to howl when Ichabod would sing, but Ichabod paid no mind and would still sing in front of the church and completely disregarded this and all other childish pranks. The other local boys had all backed off as the competition between the two men boiled. 
Finally, I decided the time had come to come clean about my intentions. When my father invited both men to his annual harvest festival, I made sure to leave a personal note in Ichabod's invitation to let him know how much I hoped he would come because I needed to speak with him. I was sure he would take this the wrong way, but either way, I needed to end this charade. The party took place on a wonderful, crisp October afternoon and evening. Fiddlers played hearty tunes and hayrides carried cheering children across my father's lands. The whole village ate heartily, especially Ichabod, and as the cool evening settled into the estate, everyone gathered together around the fire, clutching cups of hot cider as we prepared to tell ghost stories. This was everyone's favorite part, more than eating, more than Ichabod's robust dancing. My father told of the woman in white whose shrieks could be heard on misty nights. Hans Van Ripper told of witches that lived two towns over, and Ichabod contributed with insight from the works of Cotton Mather. Finally, it was time for the main event. Brom Van Brunt stood to his full, considerable height, clarifying without words how he had earned the nickname Brom Bones. His dark hair curled around his eyes as he waved his huge hands animatedly as he told the story of his encounter with the galloping Hessian of the Hollow, or the Headless Horseman, as he was often called. One night, Brom was riding home from a hunt on his giant black mare, Daredevil, when he encountered a headless rider on the road. He challenged the rider to a race across the old wooden bridge on the far side of town. They were off. Hooves pounding into the night. As they rode neck and neck through the woods, Brom spotted the bridge and leaned his body close to the panting daredevil. He was a champion rider and thundered across the wooden planks. He had bested the rider in speed and in wit by leading him to the end of his haunting territory. He turned to face the horseman and claim his prize. Instead, the horseman vanished in a flash of lightning and flourish of his cloak. Brom had altered his gaze from Ichabod and myself through the story. The teacher trembled and quaked, but also stared deeply at Brom in fear and fascination. After the story, Ichabod returned his focus to me, however, and the time for our chat drew near. I felt terrible. He had obviously put a lot of work into his appearance for the evening, and he strolled up to me as if he had won the race with the horseman himself. He had only ever been bait on my hook. I rolled my shoulders to try and take a deep breath despite my corset and stepped forward to let him know. The door slammed as he bolted from the house. In the distance, I heard the barn door, the oak barn door also slam, and the teacher grumbled and grunted as he viciously dug his heels into poor old ragged gunpowder, who jumped slightly but then returned to his lethargic, half-hearted pace as Ichabod Crane rode over the hill and out of Sleepy Hollow forever. In the morning, Hans Van Ripper found old gunpowder sheepishly trimming the grass at home, but with no saddle and no rider. When Ichabod never arrived at the schoolhouse that day, some of the men from town searched for him in the woods. The hoofprints of old gunpowder told the tale of the late night chase from the giant pursuer. The plate-sized hoof indents had been hot on Ichabod's trail from my house all the way across the hollow, Van Ripper's saddle was found, trampled in the trail. It was his best Sunday saddle, and the look on his face had me thinking that it might be better for Ichabod wherever the goblin rider had taken him. At the edge of the bridge, a shattered pumpkin was found, all that was left of his jack-o'-lantern head. He didn't need it now that he had another. 
A few years later, a local farmer said that he had seen Ichabod and that he had married a rich widow and passed the bar and was doing very well for himself. But I've seen the furrows in the ground from the mighty chase. I know better. Whenever the subject comes up, my husband, Brom, laughs and shakes his head, but refuses to say why, as if he knows something that I don't. Lemonade Mermaid here. Disney lied to you. This is my Disney lied to you portion, I think number two or three. And uh, this one's actually a little bit less shocking because Disney's version of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow is actually incredibly close to the original. I was impressed because, you know, Disney has a reputation for fabricating and silver lining a bunch of the old stories, and that's usually the case. But in the case of today's story, Disney was actually pretty faithful to the tale. They did deviate in a couple places that I'll point out to you here. And if anything, while usually Disney's deviations make the story more tame, in this week's version, they actually made it a little a little bit scarier than the original, which is kind of funny to me because it's kind of the reverse of what they usually do. First of all, in Disney's animated short, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, from the uh, Tales of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, um, Sleepy Hollow is the name of the town in which Ichabod arrives, whereas Washington Irving states clearly in his book, Sleepy Hollow is the valley in which the village rests. It's not the name of the village itself. So that's a pretty small distinction, and since this video clip is kind of a short directed at children, it makes sense to just not waste time clarifying all of that, because Irving in his original book does go into huge detail as to where exactly in New York this town is and where Sleepy Hollow the Valley is and where it stands in relation to Terrytown and it's it's pretty detailed and complicated in the book. I strongly urge you to read it. It's it's an incredibly good one. Um just as a side note though, I do encourage you as a parent, if you're going to let your child read it, make sure you read through it first and maybe have a talk with your kids about the different perspectives people had kind of at the beginning of our country because there is, at least in my version of the book, use of the n-word I think just once in the story and of course back in that time that was pretty acceptable language even people would call themselves that word but nowadays of course it's completely inappropriate so if your kids are younger I would either read this aloud to them and edit that word or explain to them kind of the difference in that word and how it was viewed today versus back then, because of course if we pretend history never happened, then we never learn from it. So it is important to include history for our children, but at the same time it is a word that maybe you want to have a conversation about, particularly in today's climates, just so younger kids don't use it and find themselves in a sticky situation. Um, let's see here, another difference between the Disney version and Washington Irving's version is that Disney left out all references to Ichabod being a fan of Cotton Mather, who is actually mentioned several times in Washington Irving's book. I think in my copy they bring up Ichabod's interest in Cotton Mather two or three times, and Cotton Mather was actually a uh, Puritan minister during the Salem witch trials, and it was his works that allowed the use of spectral evidence to be used in court, that is, evidence where people believed that um, somebody's specter could leave their body and therefore persecute um, a, a accuser of witchcraft 
in the stands while they were accusing somebody who was on trial. So let me make up a name. Say Sarah Smith was being accused by Jane, I don't know, West of witchcraft. Well, Jane West could pretend that Sarah Smith's specter or spirit was, you know, scratching her or slapping her while um, Sarah Smith was on the stands herself. And so this kind of changed the Salem witch trials and escalated them pretty quickly because they were allowing people to use evidence um, that was not actual evidence, but probably really just, you know, pretty good acting on the part of overdramatic teenage girls. So his use of, or his insistence on the use of spectral evidence really turned the Salem witch trials from kind of a low simmer to a rolling boil. It made it a much easier thing to kind of accuse and successfully uh, get someone in trouble for or executed for being a witch. So Cotton Mather's book, you know, had a lot to do with witchcraft and sorcery and goblins and ghouls and all of that kind of thing and how to find them, how to tell if somebody is a witch, how to punish somebody for being a witch, how to exercise somebody who may be practicing magic, that kind of thing. It was very detailed about all of that kind of stuff and, uh, it was pretty influential back in the time. And so this is something where, you know, if you're not from America, I do have a lot of listeners, like like 15% of my listeners listen from other countries. So if you're not from America, this might be something that is a little different to you as far as our history goes. I know in, in Europe they had their own witch trials, but I doubt the works of Cotton Mather had much of an influence over there. I mean, that's that was a pretty long way for a book to travel back then. But here, um, he was a pretty controversial figure and who holds kind of a controversial part in our history. So it's kind of important that he's mentioned several times in the original Legend of Sleepy Hollow just as a show of how superstitious Ichabod tends to be, how despite being a religious man who, when he's scared, likes to sing psalm tunes, he also while he's frightened by witchcraft and goblins and monsters and all of that kind of thing, it's the kind of frightened where you can't look away, like when you cross a car crash. He's he's both frightened and fascinated, and so books like Cotton Mather's book and ghost stories and stuff like that are a quick way to entice Ichabod and pull him in, even though he is profoundly terrified of these things. And so it says at the beginning of the book that he had a tendency to let his mind wander on these kind of subjects and scare himself while he was coming home from the schoolhouse every night. And so people would hear him singing, you know, hymns on his way home from the schoolhouse when it was really late at night and think that he was just extremely devout. When, as a matter of fact, that was his way of comforting himself when he was walking through the dark woods thinking about spooky, spooky things. So it's kind of funny to see Cotton Mather mentioned specifically in the book because it was just a reference as to how how Ichabod's interests kind of lied in, as far as the paranormal as we knew it back in that time period. In the, you know, I don't know, I guess <laughs> before I move on, I, I guess normally I kind of get a little frustrated with Disney for changing stories, and this is a pretty small thing to change. On the other hand, I can see why Disney would perhaps not want to discuss Cotton Mather and his part in the murder of several Americans in a children's story. Again, this is a children's adaptation 
of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, so I can kind of excuse Disney for excluding this. Like the, you know, geography of of New York and like the use of the N-word, I can I think it was probably good for Disney to go ahead and edit this out. On the other hand, I do think it's a historical context that is probably more important for you to discuss with your kids because, again, if we want to learn history, we need to know what it is. So, Cotton Mather maybe something to talk to your kids about this year if you're homeschooling because of COVID. Um, you may have more of an opportunity to do that if your kids are of an age where it's not something that's too harsh for them. Now, in the book, um, Irving kind of strongly implied that Brom Bones was the headless horseman and that he was just kind of pranking Ichabod, which we see him do in at several points in the original story. This, to me, is my biggest point on the whole Disney lied to you checklist. Um, Ichabod never saw the face of the Headless Horseman, and so it's likely that he just left Sleepy Hollow because of the shame of his rejection from Katrina and the humiliation of falling for Brahm's prank as he pretended to be the Headless Horseman while Ichabod was riding home from Katrina's house, and so he kind of just moved on and started his life over. However, in Disney's short, Ichabod actually, throughout the comical chase between him and the Headless Horseman to the bridge, at one point, he gets flipped off from gunpowder and onto the Headless Horseman's horse, where he looks down the horseman's collar, and his facial expression, his reaction, it's just, it's its very clear that what he sees down that collar is not Brom Bones. As much as the two of them don't get along, the look of horror on his face is not the one that you wear when somebody who likes to pick on you has just punked you. This is a facial expression of genuine fear and terror. So he sees something very different down the horseman's collar. It's never revealed to us, the audience, what he sees, but it's not the kind of salty, annoyed expression you wear when you've been punked. It's clear that uh, in Disney's version... While they do talk about the possibility of Ichabod moving and starting a family and having a different life, it's clear in the Disney version that the Headless Horseman is not Brom Bones. It's definitely something absolutely terrifying because Ichabod sees it, whatever it may be. Um, Irving's ghost, this is another minor difference between Disney's and the actual legend, Washington Irving's ghost can come out at any night, which to me is a good reason not to live in Sleepy Hollow. Um, the horseman can come out any night and chase people on the road, not just Halloween. Um, and so, you know, kind of a different thing, whereas with Disney's, it's only celebrated, or only celebrated, only comes out on Halloween night, which was not celebrated at the time largely in New York. It was just not something they did. Halloween was not a big holiday back then. And so that's part of why Katrina refers to her father's party as an autumn festival or a quilting frolic and not as a Halloween party, which we would traditionally have in October. Because Halloween just wasn't a big thing back then. It was a quilting frolic. So by Disney restricting the Headless Horseman to only be able to come out and chase people around on Halloween is another big difference from Washington Irving's book. I think it's a pretty huge difference because if you're, you know, going to be haunted by something one night a year, you can just stay home. But if it can come out any given night, that makes your life a little more complicated, right? I just think it's kind of funny that the ghost has more freedom in Washington Irving's book 
which is just kind of ironic for a ghost that fought against freedom during the American Revolution. Now, also, just kind of a side note, when scanning my brain, this is not an official release because I haven't done that much research on it, but as far as I could see in my brain, the Headless Horseman is the only Disney villain I know of that actually wins at the end of his Disney movie. Well, this could be said of Foxy Loxy at the end of the Chicken Little short, um, unless you don't count shorts, which I usually don't. I think of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow as kind of a shorter movie rather than a you know two to three minute long short. And so as far as Disney movie villains, the Headless Horseman is kind of the only victor. Last man standing, if you will. Or at least, you know, part of him. Part's missing. Um, looking into my research, there were several other mythological headless horsemen. There's a German version, which was a hunter, who died and asked God if he could stay on Earth and hunt until the end of days. Because he just, just loved it, I guess. Um, so as such, he blows his horn to warn other avid hunters when not to go hunting because they'll be killed or injured. So in the German version, their headless horseman is kind of a good guy. He lets you know, hey, you know, this may not be the good a good time to go out and get some turkeys because you're probably gonna, you know, trip on a route and really hurt yourself or, you know, it's nighttime, you might ride your horse off a cliff. I don't know. I don't know how people get hurt hunting, but, um, you know, so he's out there just to kind of warn hunters and keep them safe. In Arthurian legends, Sir Gawain beheads the Green Knight who kind of picks up his head and gives us the best possible example of keep calm and carry on. I don't really want to spoil the story of Sir Gawain's too much just yet because I do want to get around to it at some point in a later episode, but uh, the point is there is kind of an English basis for the Headless Horseman as well. Then, of course, the Irish version, I think, is the closest connected to the legend of Sleepy Hollow. It's a creature called the Dalahan, a headless horseman who sometimes has also its head, or sorry, its head, its horse has no head also. So sometimes it's just the Dalahan that's headless, sometimes it's him and his horse. He carries a whip made out of a human spine, which is horrifying, and if he calls your name, you die. I think I'd rather have him call my name and just, just die quickly than have to see the whole human spine thing. I, that That's gross. That kind of freaks me out. This story was pretty popular in Ireland, and it spread from Ireland to Scotland to the Netherlands, and the Dutch are thought to have been the ones who brought the story to the U.S. Since The Legend of Sleepy Hollow stars mostly Dutch and German characters, this is a pretty interesting connection. It's not overtly stated that the Headless Horseman is based on the Dalahan, and he tends to carry a sword rather than a whip made out of human bones, but um, it is kind of interesting connection to see that it did kind of cross the Atlantic with the Dutch and that Sleepy Hollow is supposed to be, you know, a Dutch settlement. Now, as for the horseman himself, he was supposed to have been a Hessian soldier, and the Hessians were Germanic mercenaries hired by the British to fight in the Revolutionary War. Since their princes were paid for their services and not the Hessians themselves, they tended to be very, very underpaid, and therefore would often raid the areas where they went doing their mercenary thing, um, especially since New York was seen as a particularly patriotic place back then. Get my alliteration for the day, particularly patriotic place. Uh, so, you know, just as kind of punishment to the citizens who wanted to be 
you know, their own nation and as a way for them to actually get paid for their work rather than just their prince being paid for their work. They tended to very brutally raid and tear apart any area where they were hired as mercenaries and they just kind of strip all these lush, fertile farms bare, just down to the bone to where there was really nothing left for the farmers. Thus, they received kind of a reputation for being really, really brutal. They were incredibly disliked in the New York area, and so it makes sense that they would kind of be one of the bigger villains of this story, and that they did kind of gain this kind of notoriety of, you know, just becoming kind of a catch-all boogeyman in the area at the time. Next is the teacher. Ichabod Crane. He's described as a Connecticut Yankee. Now, since I've moved south from Michigan, I've been told that I am not a Yankee. I am a Midwesterner. And I was told this as a compliment. Literally, the exact words were, well, thank God you're not a Yankee. So, there you go. Except they said it with a southern accent, which I do very poorly. (laughs) And I don't want to uh, throw anybody off by trying to do that, especially while I've got my allergies going on. It it just doesn't sound great. I've got to practice more since I moved down here. But apparently this was a compliment, like it's a good thing that I'm not a Yankee. So while I used to think a Yankee was just a northerner, clearly there's a lot more uh, nuance and context to this term than I thought. I'm going to have to study up more on that with some of the people who live around here. Um, I just think it's funny because then when I think about this, this is New Yorkers calling Ichabod a Connecticut Yankee. And Connecticut, of course, is, is south of New York, so it's kind of interesting. I always thought Yankee was what we... All Americans were called during the Revolutionary War. We were the Yankees versus the Brits. And then that during the Civil War, it became a North versus South thing. The Northerners were the Yankees and the Southerners were the Rebels. And so to me, it's, it's, I always just thought if you were from up North, you were a Yankee. Apparently I was wrong. Apparently there's a distinction between Yankees and the Midwest, or at least there is if you're a Southerner. So myself, I need a lot more (laughs) clarification on this term because a lot of what I read up on before we moved down here is that people tend to, you know, take a little longer to trust you if you have that Northern accent because they, you know, are still seeing you as kind of a Yankee from the time of the, quote, War of Northern Aggression. And so apparently the Civil War, despite being a long time ago, is still kind of a sore subject for some folks. And so I was worried that moving down here, I would be a quote-unquote Yankee and that it would take a little while to grow on people down here. But no, apparently, thank God I'm not a Yankee, was the response. So I'm going to roll with it, I guess, and just uh, do some more research on the uh, nuances of that term as far as it stands nowadays. I don't even know. Um, If any of you know, just explain to me how this term has kind of evolved into modern times. I was a little confused by it. As for um, Washington Irving's interpretation of Ichabod, he was likely inspired by two different people. There was a U.S. Marine second lieutenant named Ichabod Crane who fought during the Revolutionary War, and another... um, Lieutenant named Samuel Young, who became a school teacher after the war as well. So both of them fought in the revolution. So when you see the Sleepy Hollow TV series and people are like, oh, please, Ichabod Crane was a revolutionary war hero. He was definitely inspired by a couple of them. So they didn't really pull that out of nowhere is is where I'm going with that. I'm not saying it's 100% accurate because a lot of Ichabod's oddities did come directly from Washington Irving's brain. But um, there was definitely inspiration there. I mean, that's where one of, you know, his name came from, 
a Revolutionary War so- soldier. So, you know, it didn't just pop out of nowhere. They definitely got that from somewhere. Another kind of instance here that is of significance is the church and the bridge. In Tim Burton's film, the ghost can't enter the churchyard, and in the book, he was actually buried there. So he had to enter the churchyard because he had to return to his grave every single night. That's part of why you were safe during the day, and I think that's also part of why the bridge was so significant is because the bridge was actually the boundary of the Headless Horseman's kind of territory. It was as far from that churchyard as he could get because he needed to return there every single morning before the morning had dawned. So that was kind of of deep significance there, but it's kind of funny how that was kind of the opposite in the uh, Tim Burton movie, which was an issue of confusion for my husband. He was more familiar with the um, Johnny Depp version of the story than the Bing Crosby version. So to him, the fact that the Hessian had to return to his grave in the white church every night was strange because in the movie, he can't enter the churchyard at all. Um... Let's see. Now, when it comes to this story, the, you know, the Tim Burton version, it has a lot of its own problems, like the switching up of the names of the horses and some of the characters. And it was kind of the first version of the story I've seen where they make Katrina into a witch. Now, as I've discussed earlier, Ichabod was a big fan of that guy, Cotton Mather. So if, you know, if Katrina was a witch, I don't think he'd be nearly as interested in her, but they do follow this plot point in the Sleepy Hollow TV show as well, and I don't know, it makes them both, you know, pretty loose adaptations compared to the Disney version, which is a weird thing for me to say. Usually Disney is the loosest adaptation of any story, so it's kind of interesting to see Disney be closer to the original story than these particular adaptations, but again, um, no way Ichabod would be chasing Katrina if there was even the slight suspicion that she could be involved with witchcraft, just with his superstitious nature, not a chance. That's, that's not how that would go. He was a big supporter of, you know, one of the main figures in the country who wanted to kill witches. So, you know, yeah, not, not a good fit for this particular story. Now, here comes my favorite part, the story behind the story, because Washington Irving was a really interesting, funny, weird kind of guy, and uh, the more I did research for this story, the more I found out about the author, and it's pretty hilarious, so I'm just going to go ahead and share some of the highlights with you here. Washington Irving was born the same week that the state of New York learned of the British ceasefire from the Revolutionary War, and therefore his mother named him for George Washington. So he's Washington Irving. Kind of fun. Uh, He was a very poor student. He preferred adventure stories and dramas to schoolwork. Now, I was a pretty good student myself, but I can definitely relate to that. I a good story tends to hold my interest a lot better than any particular school subject. He moved from Manhattan to Tarrytown to avoid yellow fever, and so that's when he kind of learned of that area's geography, their folklore. He probably spent a lot of time there as a kid, 
having his own adventures, and the area has a certain fondness for ghost stories, so that's kind of where he started building the inspiration for what would become his best-known work later. He also started sending letters to his brother's newspaper, just like you see Benjamin Franklin had done with the Silence Do Good letters as a kid. Irving um, wrote his letters under the name of William Aldstyle at age 19 to kind of help with his brother's newspaper. This is the first of his pseudonyms that I was able to find in my research, but it, it's kind of the start of a pattern for him of using names other than his own to write under. Later, he went to Europe for his health, then returned to study law and barely passed the bar exam. He created a literary magazine called Selma Gundy, where he wrote under the name William Wizard or Lancelot Longstaff. He specialized in lampooning New York society. I think if you're going to lampoon New York society, you should probably choose names that are not so obviously fake names, but who am I to criticize? This, it was in this magazine that Washington Irving himself was actually the first person to call New York City Gotham City. So all of you Batman fans out there just went squee because that's where Gotham City comes from. So it's probably another thing that uh, is pretty famous about Washington Irving without it being famous Lee Washington Irving who did it. It's kind of interesting. In 1809, he completed a history of New York from the beginning of the world to the end of the Dutch dynasty, because that title rolls right off the tongue, doesn't it? Um, this was a totally fictional satirical history made to be a comedy from the perspective of a historian called Dietrich Knickerbocker, who was a whole second identity for Washington Irving rather than just a pseudonym. He placed a series of missing persons ads in newspapers looking for Dietrich Knickerbocker, an old historian who went missing from his hotel room in New York City. The, then he placed a letter from the hotel's proprietor, again, fake hotel, fake proprietor, so this is a whole other pseudonym for him, informing readers that if Knickerbocker did not show up and pay his hotel bill, he would publish the manuscript that the historian left behind in the hotel. People followed the story with great interest and even offered a reward to find the historian. He was going viral before going viral was a thing. Oh, I flipped my page here. Here we go. Irving then punished, published, not punished. Books don't care. You can't punish them. He then published a history of New York under Knickerbocker's name, and it was a massive success. He also wrote the first, or sorry, he was also the first magazine editor to publish the poem that would become the Star Spangled Banner. It was called The Defor Defense of Fort McHenry by Francis Scott Key. So he was kind of the first one to put our national anthem out there. And uh, in other words, it's just kind of another way in which he was way ahead of his time. Later, he went to England to salvage his family's import-export business and to work, then sent back stories to his brother Ebenezer, yeah, people actually named their kids that, in New York, and had it published as a sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon Gentleman. The first collection had Rip Van Winkle and was very successful. It was released in seven installments between 1818 and 1819. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow was in the sixth edition here in the U.S., then he settled back down in New York to write his biography of George Washington. So, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow was written by Dietrich Knickerbocker and found in a ho by a hotel proprietor and published by Jeffrey Crayon, all of whom were actually Washington Irving. How fun is that? 
The story is kind of about the end of courtship and gallantry, the end of a time when men were men and women were women, and courtship was a chess match. The romance is actually more of the plot point than the ghost, who is really a device to sort out the whole thing. And Irving openly states that a woman is more troubling to men than any ghost or goblin. So... I guess that makes Katrina the real villain in the story. I don't know. <laughs> if you liked the story and would like to hear more like it, you can tune in on to my program every Friday on your favorite podcasting platform. You can help contribute and keep the podcast running at patreon.com slash southernfried, where if you become a member, you'll gain lots of extra content, which will be accessible right there from Patreon. You can contact me at southernfriedstorytime at gmail.com. You can check out my channel on Rumble. You'll also find me on Facebook and Twitter. Um, so if you can support the podcast, I really do appreciate it. It helps me kind of keep things running every single week and uh, helps me add more extra content. However, if you can't contribute financially, please subscribe, like, and help me beat that you know, big tech algorithm. Share me with your friends. The Friday shows are absolutely free, so if your friends aren't sure if they'd like it, it won't cost them anything to give it a listen on Fridays. And I can't tell you how much it helps just to have you spread it through word of mouth. So, you know, just kind of help me in that way if you can, rather than financially. I know a lot of people are kind of having trouble getting back to work and everything because of the virus. So thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed it. This is an episode that I've been looking forward to since I realized that October had kind of crept up on me and it was already fall. I'm used to Michigan. You know, the house I used to have up north, it's already snowed up there. So down here it's 80 degrees. And so fall kind of snuck up on me this year. So I was excited to start some spooky stories in October. And I hope you've enjoyed listening as much as I've enjoyed researching and making them. Have a wonderful weekend. Hey everyone, I just want to pop in real quick and apologize. I had a uh, message from one of my fantastic listeners that I'm actually really, really grateful. They let me know that uh, some of my Friday recording for my Halloween episode actually didn't record. Or it recorded silently or something. There was some kind of error with my recording equipment. And so I'm going to go ahead and re-record the second portion of my show from yesterday. Um, I do feel pretty bad that that didn't go through very well for you, so we're going to re-record it, and uh, hopefully it turns out this time, because to me, that was kind of the climax of the whole episode, and to have it be gone was not much fun. Now, since I'm not sure exactly which segments made it through and which ones didn't, I'm going to kind of re-record the whole story of Robert, just because there's no good part to kind of jump in there part of the way through. So part of it may sound a bit familiar, um, since it is kind of the bulk of my outline here, but I hope you'll enjoy it. Nonetheless, thank you so much for your patience, and I do apologize for the equipment error yesterday. I first heard this story from my parents when they took a tour of beautiful Key West, Florida. Those who've listened for a long time know that I am from the frozen north, but my family has a close bond with Florida that is as much a part of us as our own blood. It's a place where my family connects to each other so much that it feels like a relative that you wish you could see more of. Florida, and perhaps especially Key West, is an island 
or sorry, is and has been the home of many glorious creative eccentrics and adventures. Whether you have wrestled with the works of Ernest Hemingway and the Tennessee Williams, or smiled at childhood stories from Shel Silverstein and Judy Bloom. This place seems to spark the fire of great imaginations. Maybe that's why it's so beloved by Jimmy Buffett and Walt Disney. It has a rich, thick, dangerous, and beautiful feel that you can only find in places like New Orleans and which was another Disney favorite, and St. Augustine in Savannah, a place where you can feel the lives that have been lived and lost. Just as deep, untouched forests feel that they may be home to fairies and unicorns, these places also feel that they have some sort of magic, a dark, dangerous, adventurous magic that will always lead to trouble and treasure, or both. It's just that kind of magic that dwelled in the artist's house on Eaton Street, these are the facts as I was best able to assemble them, but the story varies from source to source. Thomas and Minnie Otto lived a comfortable life of affluence in their home in Key West, Florida. Their third and youngest son, Robert Eugene Otto, or Jean for short, had just received a doll from his grandfather who had just returned from a trip to Germany. The doll was hand-sewn by the Stein Company and was likely a jester or a clown or something else in a store's display window rather than a regular toy store item. The doll was about the same size as the four-year-old, and the two even bore a resemblance to each other. Jean gave the doll his first name, Robert, and the two were inseparable. When Jean ate, he would sneak Robert bits of food. When he bathed, Robert sat on a towel nearby. Sometimes they even dressed alike. Jean also had a devoted nanny from either the Bahamas or Jamaica, and by all accounts she loved him very much. By some accounts, she was somehow wronged by the family and cursed the doll. Maybe she did. Maybe it was one of Jean's classmates. That's another version of the story. Maybe Jean just put so much of himself into the doll that the doll, who was treated like a living thing, became one. Or maybe all that happened was the Otto's way of explaining their quirky, imaginative, unusual child. Go ahead. Take a guess. Your guess is as good as anyone else's. It started with the voices. The Ottos would hear Robert talking to someone in his sweet little child's voice, and then he would, in turn, be answered by a completely different, deep, gravelly voice. But when anyone would enter the room, they would find only Jean and Robert. One day, Minnie heard Jean scream and beg her to save him. When she reached the door, it was locked from the inside. In the room, she could hear screaming and slamming and chaos. When she was finally able to break open the door, inside, she found the room destroyed. Jean sat curled in a ball in the corner of the room, surrounded by a mess. Robert sat on the bed, glaring at the boy. Jean looked at his mother, looked at the mess, and insisted, Robert did it. Robert did it became a constant mantra in the house. Broken toys? Robert did it. Mysterious mess? Robert did it. Shredded clothes? Servants locked out of the house? Upended furniture? Robert did it. Every time the disturbance couldn't be blamed on Jean, himself, the staff, was blamed, often fired. Visitors claimed the doll's facial expressions would change. They would hear tiny footsteps wandering upstairs. He would be placed in one room and found in another moments later. People walking by the house would see the doll move from one window to another to watch them. Finally, other family members tried to intervene. Jean's great-aunt said that the doll was cursed and they needed to get rid of it. Seems fairly obvious to me. Robert was taken from Jean and moved to a box in the attic. That night, 
The aunt was found dead in her bed in the house. The official cause of death was a stroke, but the Ottos took the hint and returned Robert to Jean. Jean grew up and studied abroad for his art. In Paris, he met Anne Parker from Boston. She was a concert pianist who majored in homemaking and was on tour in Europe, so she played piano for the King of England and made an amazing key lime pie. Sounds like my kind of lady. I'll include a link to her recipe in the description of the podcast. She was featured, the featured entertainer at the Rockefeller Center's Rainbow Room, but eventually Minnie Otto became ill, and she and Jean moved back to Eaton Street to help. When the Ottos passed away, Jean and Anne took over the house, and soon Robert became a staple of their day-to-day. No mention was made of Robert while Jean was abroad, but once he moved back to his old house, old habits returned. Again, he took the doll with him everywhere he went, wearing that same sailor suit Jean himself had worn as a child. He even had a special chair right next to their bed so that he could be right next to Jean all day and all night. Needless to say, Anne was not thrilled. She and Jean began to fight about the doll that he shared as much as if not more devotion for him than his wife. Eventually he caved and Robert was moved back to the attic. Still the couple could hear him walking around and giggling. Again, people walking past the house would see him move from window to window, and despite being locked in the attic, he would often be found downstairs in his favorite rocking chair, watching the world go by the windows of the artist's house. Rumor has it that the constant struggle cost Anne her mind and eventually her life. While I could not find any actual cause of death for Anne, she passed away about two years after Jean, so I wonder how much of her alleged insanity came from Robert and how much came from grief and how much was made up for the sake of a spooky story. As in any decent story, after the autos were gone, a new family moved into the artist's house on Eaton Street. They had a little girl who was excited to find a brand new doll, until the doll started to move around the room. The girl would scream and hide from the doll, and they would find it looming over her, much like Jean before her. The girl claimed the doll attacked her and even tried to harm her, a claim that she maintains to this day now that she's an adult. Robert was again banished to the attic, where he giggled, walked around, and frequently escaped to make messes. One night, the new owners could hear laughing and moving in the dark. When they turned on the light, they found Robert at the foot of the bed with a kitchen knife. This was the end of the relationship between Robert and the artist's house. The family gave him to the East Martello Museum, where he still causes trouble. Cameras often become inoperable from the moment a tourist tries to take a picture of Robert until they leave the museum. Tourists who fail to show the doll the proper respect are said to become overcome with a feeling of dread or nausea. Some who earn his wrath have continual bad luck until they write a note of apology to the doll, like people who have had to mail back their volcanic rocks to Hawaii because they stole the stone and incurred the wrath of the volcanic goddess Pele. Rumor has it that George W. Bush even wrote a letter to Robert when he took office asking him not to cause trouble during his administration. Psychologists would tell you that Robert the doll, much like the Chucky doll that was based on him in Child's Play, um, bothers us for the same reason as Pennywise the Dancing Clown, the Uncanny Valley. This is a term for the unsettled confusion that happens to our brain when something looks human but isn't. The more similar the features are to those of an actual human, the more they trigger this kind of glitch in our brain. 
Just as a clown's makeup, in contrast with its actual facial expression, gives us pause, our minds are driven to seek faces. Even the blurry vision of an infant is drawn to anything that looks like facial features. So when something throws this instinct just a little off and gives us a sense of danger or, or unease... Our bodies try to warn us that we're being tricked, even as our conscious mind knows that we're just looking at an innocent toy. But was Robert an innocent toy? Whether you believe the doll was indeed haunted, cursed by voodoo, or given a dose of life from a child's obsessive love, or simply the scapegoat for the quirky behavior of a creative child who grew up to be an equally quirky and creative man, Key West is no stranger to quirks, creativity, or hauntings. But the fact that Robert's legend has reached so far and wide is very telling, as is his ability to inspire other haunted doll stories. Living doll stories are all over the world, possibly because of the uncanny valley. Daruma dolls helped grant New Year's wishes in Japan. Vasilisa the Beautiful used a doll blessed by her mother to escape the Russian witch Baba Yaga. Robert is a decidedly more menacing version of the living doll, but as these creatures keep popping up, we have to wonder why. I chose both of these stories for Halloween because they're both stories that have been sticking in the back of my brain for decades. Last week's hero, Ichabod Crane, could probably relate to something that frightens and fascinates me at the same time. The ring scared me long before I had ever heard of Okiku. It took two innocent joys in my life, TV and children, and twisted them for the, into the forces of evil. It was this twist of things warm and comforting into something terrible that gave me the nightmares for years. I was not afraid at all when I watched the film. It was later, when my mind explored it, that it dug more deeply into me. So deeply that when the third movie in the series came out a few years ago, the previews alone were enough to send me into a tailspin of the old nightmares. Even in my late twenties. Monsters and murders don't scare me but the betrayal of turning something sweet into something demonic shakes me. I think that that's also why the story my parents brought back from Key West, Florida, dev about a doll that devastated a family, a symbol of childhood innocence working as an agent of evil, has stuck in my brain, teasing and intriguing it for years. Robert hasn't made me lose as much sleep as The Ring, but both are stories that I can't seem to let go of, especially one that, like Bram Stoker, Stracula, or The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, tend to draw from real names and places. If you're a holdover from my previous podcast, you know that I love a good story, and when bits of that story are real, I tend to get in a little deeper. So, while creepy kids and dolls may not give you nightmares, I'll hope you'll excuse me if I skip the antique doll section of the local museum. I need my sleep. Like most disasters, it started with one person. Sharp pains shot through his body. At first, he thought he must have injured himself during his work. When he leaned forward to examine his legs more closely, he was swept into a tailspin of dizziness. He shook his head to clear it, only to be blinded by something in his eyes. When he rubbed them, his hands were covered in blood. His eyes scanned his arms in horror as tiny pinpricks of blood erupted at every pore. The blood flowed more and more heavily from his flesh, covering his face and body. 
the man had passed away within half an hour. And soon, hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands would follow. Prince Prospero saw the plague, dubbed the Red Death, tear itself through the countryside. His kingdom began to collapse as the pandemic hit those who lived in close quarters first, passing the sickness quickly between them. As the labor class began to quickly shrink, so too did the amount of goods and supplies that the upper classes thrived on. Prospero was a sagacious man, and as soon as it became clear that access to luxury goods may be strained, he quickly imposed a tax upon all of the finer things he and his friends loved, under the pretense that it would be redistributed to the people who were healthy as a form of relief aid. That's right. It was for the good of everybody. Like a true politician, he failed to disclose that those healthy people he planned to protect, support, and supply were only the ones that he chose as worthy. They were indeed healthy survivors, but not all of the healthy survivors, just the royalty. Prospero and 1,000 of his closest nobles shut themselves into one of his castles. They welded every door and every window shut so that no commoners could carry the dread disease into their stronghold. There, with their luxurious horde, the nobles reveled in their safety and decadence. How did they plan on building a functioning society after this apocalypse, when all the consumers in society lived and all the producers in society died? Don't know. My guess would be that they planned to farm, mine, and build and produce themselves when the commoners were dead. When you have never done any of these jobs yourself, you tend to think, or sorry, I think you tend to vastly underestimate the strength, skill, and intelligence these jobs take. We know that none of these people were above a little bit of hubris. After all, they've already decided they were the only ones who deserved to survive the Red Death and have even acted upon that conclusion. If they were willing to learn and to work, it's possible the survivors could learn to be self-sufficient, but they never have been before. These are the kind of people who don't even dress themselves. Their life's education has had more to do with leading armies not fighting in them, with trading goods not producing them. It is a critical role in society, but to survive a new world, they would need a completely different skill set. It would be very hard because it would be so different from the life they have known. Not impossible, but a struggle that would border on suffering, and the revelry of these nobles as the world died around them leads me to believe that they have no idea how hard it will be to pick up the pieces once they have waited out the plague. Whether to distract the nobles from death or from the struggle they would surely face afterward, the prince threw a masquerade ball that was to last for days. He commissioned seven special rooms to be decorated for the mask to take place. One room was blue. It was painted blue with blue drapes and blue furniture. It was even lit by a blue lamp casting the room in an azure glow. This pattern followed with rooms that were purple, then green, then orange, then white, then violet. Only the last room was different. This last room was decorated in black, with deep black drapes and ebony flooring. In this room, an ebony clock stood, and every hour sounded an alarm that could be heard through the entire castle. This room 
was lit by a deep, heavy red glow from a blood-red lamp, making it appear as though the room was drenched in bottomless gore. Because of the ominous nature of this room, very few guests could bring themselves to spend time in it. Every time the dark clock marked the passing of another hour, whenever it did, the orchestra would stop, the dancers would halt, and all would be silent until Prince Prospero bade the revelry continue. Other than this brief, dark reminder of the terrible events outside, the party was joyous, a celebration, until midnight. While they were having their moment of silence, Prospero noticed something disturbing. A man in the crowd was dressed in a blood-spattered funeral robe and a mask that mimicked the blood-stained visage of the bodies of a Red Death victim. Prospero was sure he had never invited such a man into his sanctuary, yet every way in was welded shut. The prince was so infuriated by the intrusion and the tasteless costume that he chased the man, demanding his identity so that he know who he should hang for this offense. In a blind rage, he pursued the cloaked man through each of the colored rooms until they hit a dead end at the bloody room. The prince drew his dagger and rushed at the intruder, but when the Red Death turned to face him, Prospero let out a painful shriek and collapsed to the ground, dead, with blood oozing from each of his pores. The guests were outraged at the fall of their host. When they laid hand on the figure, the mask clattered to the ground and the empty cloak fluttered away. When the plague ended and outsiders were able to weld their way into the castle, they found it to be nothing but a tomb for a thousand people. Their reverse, their reverse quarantine had given them no escape from their doom. Thank you so much for tuning in to Southern Fried Storytime and we will continue spooky season on Wednesday, and I hope you have a wonderful weekend.